And now, Hollywood Prospectus. Hello and welcome to the Hollywood Prospectus Podcast. My name is Chris Ryan. I am a writer for Grantland.com and on the other line, he lives in a land of wolves now. It's Andy Greenwald! Woo! Sicario! Sicario! <laughs> yes! Whoa. You hey, saw buddy. it! <laughs> I saw a movie for you. These wolves shed everywhere. Man. Uh, Let's talk. I mean, we're going to talk about a bunch of things. We're going to talk about TV. We should tell people that. We're going to talk about this film in a way that is enticing to those who haven't seen it. We are not going to spoil it right away. And then we are. Yeah. So we'll but, do like 10 minutes of Sicario talk spoiler free. And, and we'll then you- we'll do for the for the only built for Cuban links spoilerific 10 minutes. But let me say... Before we get into that, we'll give people a buffer. We'll give people a heads up. We're just going to keep it moving. We're not on video today, so it's 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 fun. It's we'll wild. just we'll it's just like, drop mad public morals ads in there. I, I feel. <laughs> can I just tell you? I feel a little bit like I am in an unmarked drug cave somewhere underneath Arizona without visuals today. But that's good because Chris, you were really hype on this film. We <laughs> talked about that. it on this podcast, yeah. and uh, so I went to see it. I don't yeah. see many movies. People know that. It's 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 hard for for a guy of my. Uh, my age and decrepitude to make it to the the multiplex but i did and here's the way i had to do it though chris it's kind of a weird look like i had to go see a 5 p.m showing at union square i feel like every single time you go to see a movie you have to regale me with five minutes of like the process of like buying a ticket yeah do you know that they sell popped corn (laughs) i didn't know you could do that to corn did you get some flavored uh flavored spices on there i guess all spices are flavored are they you know did you dust them with like Chris, I I felt dusted. There is no question that (laughs) I ingested some kind of dust. Because I sat down to see this movie, and actually, I was surprised. You you looked over, and Denzel Washington was like, you like to get wet? (laughs) Denzel Washington was like, no. He was like, shh. Because he had seen it like six times. I know. It was crowded at a 5 p.m. Thursday show, so I just did a little bit They're back, doing pretty which, good numbers for limited release, man. They, like, oh, there they was, are. Heads were out for the 2.45 p.m. of the last... I went... So I've seen it twice. What? Yeah, and the first night we went, it was sold out, and then the second time when I saw it at 2.45 p.m., dudes were just out there. Yeah, out here, uh, even. Can, here's what I want to say, Chris. I was sitting back in the, uh, the auditorium, uh, which is okay, but I was kind of at the distance where you're like, I'm well aware I'm in a movie. Like, I could see yeah, the Yeah, you can see, like, the sides of the screen kind yeah. of thing. Yeah, and I was like, that's not ideal. And then by the end of it, I thought I was living inside of a wolf carcass. <laughs> <laughs> like, I left the movie theater, and I kind of pushed, stumbled past people, and I went to the restroom because, you know, nature called. I had my needs. Sure. And I went in there, and I, I did my, my normal business, and I, I washed okay. my hands, and I looked in the mirror, and my eyes were the color of strawberry jujubes. Why are we going like, full Nausgaard on this? Like, I why just like, wanted... And then I went to the bathroom. I just... It's my struggle, man. I just wanted to tell you that I don't know what happened during the film, but I looked like I had been on a bender in the snoring You desert. saw the true... The just Denny Villeneuve showed you the real truth. Yeah, so let let's get into it because this guy, uh, you know, this is actually a good test case because, thank goodness, I'm not a, a cinema critic. I've never seen any of this French Canadian gentleman's films. Yeah, I don't think you should see Prisoners. I'm fine. I, you know what? I don't have time to see it. That's great. You Terrific. can see Enemy, but Prisoners might be a little too uh, too lit for you. Honestly, how do you say lit in French? No, take it off my Eat. list. That's that's fine. It's too lit. <laughs> 
<laughs> Boku Leet. I uh, this was enough for me, and it was it was it was a, a, a great and intense movie. So let's talk let's talk about this in abstract terms. Why we want people to go see it? Because you have a piece up that just went up on on the website Grantland.biz. Um, <laughs> we're expanding Grantland.edu. University of Phoenix style <laughs> yeah. continuing education. You, get, you can get credit for for reading this. You should, Chris. You wrote this piece. You are a terrific writer, Chris. When you, especially when you are <laughs> Boku Leet, and you <laughs> you wrote about this movie. There's so many different ways into it. And you wrote about it as basically the apocalypse now of the drug war, which yeah. is a brilliant take and very gripping piece of writing by you. I Th- loved it. Thank you. That's um, very nice of you. Tell me. There are a number of ways we're going to talk about this. None of them will involve me going to the restroom at the Regal Union Square, I promise. Um, so open up, open up the conversation. Okay, no well, let's just give a little bit of background to what this movie is. It's uh, the fourth film from Denis Villeneuve, who directed Anson D's Prisoners and Enemy. Um, this is his, I think, second collaboration with the cinematographer Roger Deakins, who you will know from his work on maybe Skyfall or No Country for Old Men. You will know him by the trail of dead cinematographers you know that he left in his for wake. For real, because he's just ethering dudes out here with his mm-hmm. lenses. Uh, and it stars uh, Emily Blunt as an FBI uh, agent who specializes in sort of the resolution of kidnapping cases, I guess is the best way to put it. She goes through doors. And she is recruited by Josh Brolin who plays a guy named Matt Graver, who it's not exactly clear who he works for. Uh, And he is uh, his partner, uh, a man named Alejandro, who is played by Benicio Del Toro, and it's really not clear who he works for. And they want her to join them on a mission to, to quote Josh Brolin, dramatically overreact to some increased uh, cartel action stateside. So the idea is that she is putting out little fires mm-hmm. in Arizona, yes. and she is drawn into the larger conflict. Basically, she's offered the chance to find the person with the flamethrower. Yeah. Like, find the person who is responsible. Like, stop stop doing this ticky-tack stuff, and let's get something done, which is appealing to her. Although she, as she constantly says, she's not a soldier. She is very old-fashioned, almost, in her approach to... Um, uh, protecting the law yeah well i think so what i talked about in this piece and we can just kind of use it as a jumping off point is that traditionally when we look at when you if you read books about the drug the war on drugs if you've seen films like traffic um the war on drugs is treated more as a law enforcement issue uh and in some ways a uh, a border issue you know in terms of, of of important export of cash and drugs and that's the way that we've sort of understood it in terms of its literature and, and the culture surrounding it. I'm not talking about the actual issue. This film is very much a war movie, and it very much treats, looks at the drug war as it's become this increasingly militarized thing that has drawn in more and more governmental agencies, more people with military experience, more people who are treating um, the conflict as a military conflict rather than a law enforcement issue. And... That is a lot of the long way of saying that this film is about Emily Blunt's character kind of, you know, in some ways, to, you, you, the easy way to say it is is descending into hell. But what I really think is it's about is about her just sort of having to reckon with all of the things that she understood about this world in a moral sense. Yeah. And I think I really like what you're saying about um the more American nuts and bolts, meat and potatoes, law enforcement idea. Like the idea that 
that uh, there's a war on drugs and it can be won as if people's appetites and desires can be somehow yes. stopped, which is just a, you know, a ridiculous and impossible concept. And I think slowly people are beginning to realize that now the literature or the, as you said, like the, the way that's been portrayed on, especially on, on TV or movies like traffic, they, they've, they've fallen in lockstep with that narrative more or less. Um, Coming at it from the other side of the border, um, in an interesting way, I, I was thinking about Roberto Bolaño's book um, 2666, which is a, you know, a really, really long, really, really sprawling um, dystopic vision of um, basically vision of hell centered in Juarez. And it's not as specifically about the drug war so much as it's about a place that has become corrupted and ugly and hideous beyond all recognition. And that idea of taking this thing that is people want to do drugs and we want to stop them with guns, taking what seems to be a binary and just, you know, flipping it inside out and realizing it's a bottomless pit has not been a way that this, that our country has really covered this as an idea. And I don't think Sicario is that because as you said, it is a war movie, but it is a war movie that tiptoes up to the black hole and then kind of has its heart sucked into it. Yeah. And I think that you know, I want to talk a little bit more about the filmmaking here so, because that's the easiest way to talk about it without giving anything away for people who haven't seen it. And then in a couple of minutes, we can talk a little bit more about the plot in detail. But I think it's worth mentioning that this is a film about the drug war in which drugs on the MacGuffin. Mm-hmm. Um, there's one point where a character, where Josh Brolin's character, very dismissively says to Emily Blunt's FBI agent, if we find any drugs, you can keep them. Yeah, you can confiscate. It's them. not even, and it's like he's about. kind of just like that's not the point. The point is that this has now become uh, a war in the very real sense of we have like there. There's just like this endless conflict with this adversary now that we have. Whether or not we created that adversary, whether that adversary learned how to be what it is by watching us, um, it's now it's now transcended. Like we simply don't want this product coming up into our country it's not about that anymore. right it doesn't matter anymore in a sense that it's 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 almost a prison movie too because what they're doing is essentially saying no that's not over there anymore we are all in the same jail yard and our job is to go up to the biggest guy in the yard and punch him in the face right and wars are essentially about cycles of violence and that's what i mean sicario really shows you is just how these cycles of violence can just continue to multiply and amplify over and- time and I think we can say this in this part of the non-spoiler conversation, but I am not the person anyone listening to this should listen to when it comes to recommending films because of, you know, you probably see a lot more of them than I do. But God, was this exciting to see a film made like this? Yeah, you know, so that's, I, that's the main, I think I want, if anybody's listening to this and is just like, well, I'm not that interested in the border, like, I'm not that interested in the war on drugs or I'm not that interested in Josh Brolin. You have to understand that this might be one of the three or four best active filmmakers working for, right now. Can I just say, if, if you're not interested in Josh Brolin, you're probably listening to the <laughs> yeah, wrong Yeah, you're doing podcast. it wrong. Also, you're out of luck because Josh Brolin's in everything. Josh Brolick. <laughs> yeah. This guy really brings in this film as do, as do ev- frankly, everyone in the cast does. This is a really yeah, well and cast, across really the well board. I mean, film. it's it's Villeneuve, it's Deacons, it's the script from Taylor Sheridan, it's the music from Johan Johansson, which is basically like, uh, you know, nine inch nails run through like a screwed in shop and then amplified to a thousand and played at the bottom of a stairwell. I mean, it's just, it's so a, an overwhelming sensory experience. I mean, your reaction afterwards was not uncommon. I think people are like, I, I mean, I think I saw it with Ryan O'Hanlon from work and he was like, I feel like I'm having a heart attack. And in a good way, it's like you're having a really good heart attack. Yeah, it's it's a thrilling heart attack, and it's the kind of heart attack that makes almost everything else worth it. Like, you know, I think that 
this is an example of something that we've talked about in the past too. It's uh, it's it's a, I think a, a fascination of ours when you actually can see filmmaking, like you see the seams. Because sometimes people say that the greatest, you know, the greatest TV or greatest books or greatest movies are when you don't see the work. It just feels effortless. Yeah, sure. And in fact, watching this movie, there were moments where I was like, well. This script might not be very good. I don't know if it is. It might be very good. Right. And there's certainly there are twists and turns that m- make it seem like a very capable screenplay. But it is unquestionably the, the filmmaking that elevates this movie in a way that is totally, totally exhilarating to watch. Like, it, there, there are moments um, where I was like, ah, uh, wait, I don't know. Well, is that... And then it doesn't matter. It just simply doesn't matter. And yeah. so it is, was so fun to, to take that kind of pleasure... And and have a visual experience and a watching experience that was so gripping and intense and emotional. And you could put aside, not put aside the critical part of your brain, because in fact, it really engages it. But put aside the, the nitpicking, um, you know, airplane sound uh, yeah. part of your brain, because yeah. it doesn't matter. The movie is And like I, I think that that's a good feeling to hold on to while watching this movie, because obviously... You know, we're talking about it and we're saying it's a war movie and drugs are besides the point. Drugs are the MacGuffin. And, you know, you you don't want to become too um, disassociated disassociated from what the film is actually about. I mean, I I don't feel like it's exploitive in any way. But I think that one thing that you said to me, you know, last week when you saw it um, was something along the lines of like the portrayal of Juarez as this kind of Hieronymus Bosch painting is – it's not necessarily problematic as much as it's a choice. And the way that the, the highly stylized nature of the film can lead you to be a little bit disassociated, not only from the violence that it portrays, but also from the fact that it's a very real story that they're telling. That's right. They're they're making this movie and it's a movie about, as you said, it's a movie about violence. It is a movie, movie about the human soul and what can happen to it. It's a movie about vengeance. Uh, it's a movie about bureaucracy and governments. Um it is essentially more interested in being about those macro things than it is about the micro truth of our drug war, of our relationship with Mexico, of the city of Juarez. And I, you know, I walked to that movie thinking, you know, I, I care. I, I love the country of Mexico. I love to visit it. I, I, I try to be sensitive to that version of the story. And there are points in this movie where I'm like, well, I kind of wish that the Mexican characters weren't just, you know, soccer playing, bullet dodging background noise. Yeah. Um, that is upsetting to me. I wish there was a movie where they were a more vocal and vibrant presence, and that aspect of the story was true. But I feel like the truth of Juarez and of our drug war is both a lot, in some ways, a lot better than what we see and probably a lot worse. And that's okay. That Art can do that. Like, something this strong artistically can go in there and tip things over and knock things over and get us talking about it, and I think still have value. Yeah. Certainly have value artistically. You know, I, I don't know if, if Villeneuve um, likes how I just said his name. I don't know if he's read... <laughs> I don't know if he's read Charles Bowden's Murder City. You know, I don't know what his familiarity... I don't know if he's been to Juarez. I don't know where they filmed part of the movie, to be honest with you. But the way he films the hills over the you know the, the, the desert uh, and the border part of Arizona yeah, it's is... It's the gates of hell. It's yeah. shocking and it's incredible and it's worth seeing regardless of that, you know, and I, I felt the same way. I, you know, you knew I was going to bring it up. I mean, the TV show, The Bridge that I loved was not this, but it was in many ways attempting to be a serialized version of this with room for a little bit more bagginess and humanity and humor on the edges. And that wasn't quote unquote right, but it was worthwhile. And this though, this is just its own thing. Yeah. So, I mean, do you want to talk a little bit about this in terms of like a slightly spoiler uh, description or yeah, maybe because I feel like in order to 
talk specifically about Benicio and that performance. Sure. Um, we probably should because I don't think we're gonna. I know it's the movie's in limited release now, and as you alluded to, it's making a lot of money, which is you know I, in this case I think it's good because it was an expensive film, and I think it's you know it's not an easy sell. Yeah. So um, our former colleague uh, uh, Kevin Glinkin wrote a piece on Vulture about opening weekends and limited release, and this one had a really high one. Anyway, so it's not everywhere yet. So we're gonna talk about it now. I'm giving you a long pause to press pause, and when we come back, you just. Fast forward like a couple minutes. Yeah, and just, fa- just li- fast forward like five minutes. We'll we'll do a there will be a drop afterwards. So you and, can hear it. And when you hear Chris just bang like a wolf <laughs> at a super blood moon for thirty seconds, That's that it. means it's safe to come back. That's it. Okay, so goodbye, adios, hasta luego. Uh, so, um, a couple of things happen in this movie that I think are pretty interesting that you have to kind of talk about what what it is to to get at them. Um, one is I let's start with Blunt, who's remarkable in this movie and you know if you think that you're like oh yeah she's pretty tough i saw her in edge of tomorrow like you're not even like this is this is an incredibly naturalistic performance and it's pretty rare that you see a situation like this where um a female character or female hero spends most of the movie emotionally and physically being beaten you know um yeah is she it goes through an almost kind of like um I, I don't know it's almost like religious the kind of like 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 a experience she has to have where she almost needs to go through these she, like it's like a, almost a baptism of violence and it's hard she, to explain she has her breath knocked out of her by an ally's bullet yeah. i mean she's gasping right. to process what is happening she, it's she very is very intense beaten she is like you know suppressed she is turned like every time she tries to like grab onto a kernel of truth it slips out of her hand so it's an incredibly demanding performance and she's remarkable in it uh she really is she she is great and one of the things that i really liked about the movie um is that she's a patsy i mean that that the character is a patsy and is taken advantage of and that's the story and And there is no underestimating her and she comes back to to fix to fix everything and like put you know both get the bad guy and put the somewhat good guy but mostly bad guy away it's it's somebody who is like a you know she is the lamb you know and she is sacrificed and not to put too fine a point on it i mean i since we're spoiling it um i didn't love the way the cop uh, the cop's family, the Mexican cop's family and his son were, were, were woven into it. I thought it was a little, I mean, I, it's the sort of thing where you're damned if you do, damned if you don't. I was glad. Like if he just paid, shows up midway through the movie, you're just like, who is this guy? I'm glad they paid attention to it. Otherwise, there would have been a, no, you know, Mexican characters of note. There would have been no perspective on that side of the border. But at the same time, it almost felt, it was felt heavy handed. And ending it that way felt a little heavy handed to me. Whereas... What happens to Emily Blunt's character is a much neater metaphor for what this movie is, which is kind of about our the best American intentions. Sure. I mean, we we this, have this sort of dedication to the rule of law and to like building in, cases, yeah, in the face of the impossible maw of this need, hunger, and violence, and she is beaten by it. She she is a good person, I think. You know, she she does her best, and she cannot win and there is no moral victory either you know at the end there's a moment where you think maybe she's going to take the moral high road but what does that get her it gets her dead yeah and that's not particularly good either yeah so i mean there's that that's a that's an incredibly interesting element to this whole film and then there's the benicio character um who plays this guy alejandro who is is the titular 
Sicario. He's a hitman, basically. Uh, he used to be a prosecutor in Juarez. His daughter and wife were executed by the cartels, and he has pretty much waged a one-man war against them ever since, working for whoever will – I think if jo- if I remember the Josh Brolin line, right? Whoever will get him closer to those who made him. Yes. Or, you know uh, – it's just you know a towering, towering performance. It it almost has like elements to of like, um, like a character in a spaghetti western who does all his acting with just gestures and his eyes. You know, there there were moments in this movie, you know, he's because he's in fighting shape in the movie and he needs to be. There are moments like in the shadows where I was like, wait, wait, Brad Pitt has let himself go a little bit because he has movie star charisma and always has, you yeah. know. But he's Del Toro, and he is just his own animal. You know, he is just a wild, wild performer who doesn't need to try. You yeah. know what I mean? There, he's he's a Yoda actor. There's only do. Yeah. He does not need to try. And he plays the same guy from the minute we first see him to the minute we see him execute someone's family in front of them. And he never changes what he's doing. The circumstances around him change, and our attitudes about yeah, him Yeah, our change, understanding of him changes, changes, for sure. And that is really, really striking. And and the idea that he represents is so provocative and, you know, messed up, but also weirdly attractive, which is that, you know, and this brings us back to one of our favorite topics, which was the TV, television show Narcos. <laughs> because, seriously, though, because, you know, when you and I were growing up, uh, Colombia, Medellin, these, these country, the country, the city, these words that, you know, that are used yeah. in the movie Sicario meant something. Even the meant, word cartel, yeah. They meant chaos and violence and just uh, our perception of what the country of Colombia was basically what we saw in Narcos. But even it felt, we it felt like when we were kids, it, that felt very far away. Very far away, but it also felt like total murderous chaos to the point where I have a friend who grew up in Medellin. And I and and she she's you know had a very nice childhood. She's like except they they would blow up the buses sometimes. And it's like that is an impossible way to imagine growing up. Sure. So, but that's existed there, and that coincided with Mexico having a you know more robust and booming economy. And then Colombia pushed it, the violence got got itself together, and the violence got squeezed northward. And Mexico is now being eaten alive by this. And of course, where does the violence go next? Right. Unless we're and, and so this idea. And the well, movie, the whole point is that it's 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 creeping north. It's in Chandler, Arizona. It's going to be in Phoenix, as Josh Brolin's character says. He's sort of like the the seer in this movie. He's kind of like the the all seeing eye, and he's like, in six months, every house you raid is going to be Jerry with, with explosions. You know, um, this is what's this is what the future looks like. This is what the future looks like in a land of wolves. And so this idea that Del Toro was sort of working for people who wanted to bring bring the business back home to Colombia. Yeah. Yeah. What kind of happy ending is that? It's 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 a really crazy thought. Um, And that brings back to what you were saying before, which is actually actual drugs are not even in the movie for the most part. We see some being loaded into a car, but we don't see people using them. It's it's. That's not even what this is. Yeah. I mean, when she tries to go into the – she wants to build a case against Manuel Diaz with the with his bank you know, records, he's just like – the bank records are like have nothing to do with this. This is just shaking the tree. We're just trying to provoke him into doing something else. What about specific – some specific things? Though? Like let's talk about – let's just talk about the border crossing scene. Yeah. Which One is, of the rare things that has basically been given away in the trailer, and I can't even tell you how much more intense it is to see it in the film. That is a wild scene. And <laughs> doesn't – it's not like anything, quote-unquote, goes wrong. No. It's it, just the, I it, think that those guys pretty much anticipated that happening. 
and the intensity with which it's done. And, you know, and, and we talked about this on the phone when I was, you know, jittery and shaking walking through the streets of, of Manhattan on Thursday. Um, one of the things that elevates, you know, great filmmaking, and this can happen on TV too, though, is the care, uh, you know, the attention paid to details and the casting uh, and consideration of even the tiniest parts. Yeah. There's, at, there's at four up. or five main characters in this movie and, um, the amount of time they spend just w- really economically hammering in details about those characters. So whether it's Josh Berlin wearing flip-flops or Silvio the cop in Mexico and what he eats for breakfast and how he puts a little tequila in his coffee or just Benicio del Toro and the way he folds his uh, his sports jacket or, you or know, the, the fact the- that... Those like Texas Rangers with their with their yeah, ten gallon hats. The the Delta Force guys, like every character has, seems mm-hmm. to have like a complete world that they are, the a, a total like lifetime behind them that is being suggested in these little gestures, but isn't overly dwelled on. Can we give some shouts to uh, Maximiliano Hernandez though for playing Silvio the the, the Sonoran cop because <laughs> that's the dude from from the Avengers yeah, movie. He's uh the the the. This what's the, what's the he's a Hydra guy. Hydra. That's he was on the Spectre. first season of The Americans. Oh yeah, and uh, you know he, he, it's a it's a pretty good look for him. It all this. leads back to, to to your two favorite shows. It all leads back to my two favorite shows on FX, uh, as as it always often does. Um, the, the movie we should probably move on a little bit. Yeah, but it, it's just beautiful to look at. You know, it's really it it kind of we this is what we were talking about also the other night. Like, I, 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 they, there can and should be you know. A, plenty of debate if you want to about the you know the quote-unquote politics of the film or things that were problematic or whatever word you want to use but i want to focus just now like i, I loved how beautiful it looked yeah and i the, the scenes of the sun setting the scenes as they just literally descend into hell which is a point you brought out really well in your piece and and just one last point here you can you again as someone who goes to the movies you can speak to this better than i can but i they, i feel like they don't make many they there aren't many genre movies made anymore with uh, even a medium budget or with medium stars you know right. it's, it's it's feast or famine and as someone who likes genre movies i like lean and mean movies that do what they're meant to do to to see this done with such expertise and care was a total thrill yeah it was it's a total thrill it's it's you're right about the script stuff you said earlier i think it's a good script but i wonder whether or not a replacement level director if this is just more like I don't know, like taken, you know what I mean? Like not, not in its storyline, but in its execution. Um, but it, it's, yeah, it's I mean, something obviously pretty special. Can I ask you, like, he didn't need to go in the tunnel, right? Like if they were tracking the guy from the U.S. Sure. I mean, like, no, but wait, they had the tracking the guy from the U.S. and they had a helicopter on him. Couldn't the helicopter just have told him where to go? Like, couldn't he just have got across the border and just been hanging out? Of course. Yeah. I don't, I, I don't know whether that had to provide the sort of, bureaucratic slash operational cover that they needed to to do that you know like i don't i'm not sure at all like there, there's definitely like why are they doing this this way or how did they know that this guy or, was going to be or, right there or, at this time or why is this the single most successful week of investigations in the history of exactly. any governmental yeah. organization he's been looking for these guys for like 10 years and and he finds them with like within a couple of days um all very uh it's just it's my favorite film of the year so you should definitely get it if you if you're listening to this part uh you've already seen it but i don't it's hard to imagine something better yet time to start baying like a wolf chris we got to bring our people back
we're back. If you uh, skip the last ten minutes or so, we're talking about. Uh, well, we got a bunch of television coming up. You know, it's like been been some dead weeks since the end of what? I guess the end of True Detective. Like, what's well, the end of the summer season. But yeah. Here's, here's what's so funny. Kind of like, since the end of Mr. Robot. Sorry. Yeah, but in the end of your vacation, which <laughs> end I think we of all my vacation. Yeah, we all felt viscerally. Yeah. Um, here's what's so weird about the way TV is now. Like. The last few weeks, obviously, I, I had to spend time in the network trenches writing about the fall season. And I wrote about how disappointing it was and disheartening it was and how, like, the summer had been so exciting and fresh and to go back into all this, particularly this being the worst broadcast fall in right. television history, felt so bad. And the fall used to sort of matter. But I kind of forgot that once that, that broadcast storm cloud passed, cable networks are ready with bangers. Yeah. Like, they take the fall seriously. And the next few weeks... A lot of heavy hitters are back up in our lives. So we have Homeland and your favorite show, The Affair, coming back on Sunday. Um, and, the, and, and The Leftovers is coming back. And then we have, a week later, we have Fargo coming back for season two. And a week after that, we have The Nick season two coming back. So this is a lot. Now, so it's hard for me not to see anything but the Nick here because I'm I'm so geeked on that coming back and I'm so excited to see what they do. Let with me it. tell you, man, I just got the episodes and I can't watch them yet because I have to clear all this other stuff. Wow, I, they they're they're done. I have them. They're burning a hole in my. Well, I don't know. They're they're on a streaming service site, but whatever. <laughs> I miss things. I miss physical th- objects. Yeah. Can you imagine if they sent promo swag? Like if they well, just like- sent. Oh, like a, like a rusted vial of old like horse horse cocaine or something. Why would they need to give cocaine to horses? Because they don't run fast enough. <laughs> uh, they've only been like we gave that horse some coke. He was great for one race. It was the the horse thought he was running the most creative and best race ever. Yeah, but in fact, right. then the horse just started talking to me about his script idea. <laughs> yeah, exactly. um, all right, so let's start with Homeland. Um, yeah, yep. and, writing about it for this week. Let's and The Leftovers. So have we gone a bridge too far with Carrie? Is there any reason to keep track of her European vacation here? Yes. So she's in Germany, right? Yes. Uh, How I did, want... did we like it at the end? We did not like the end of we last season. We did like it at the end. Did we and in fact, or did I'm... you? No, we both did, pal. <laughs> okay. We both did. And oh, right, because we were... it had those super weird last episode, right? The last episode was a very weird, like, quiet, like... Where she's like, I'm in love with you, Quinn, too? Yeah, and then here's my mom, and I have to go for a long drive, right. and... Uh, but the second... It was the penultimate episode. There was, like, a lot of... I mean, the, when I wrote a piece saying the show got good again, the title of it was Bad Guys Go Boom. It was basically like, okay, this is just going to be a crazy action show for a while, and it's pretty good at that. Um, the piece I'm writing this week is basically about this insane yo-yoing reaction where I started last season being like, it's over. And then 10 episodes later, I was like, everybody come back. Uh, it's pretty good. It's pretty good. Okay. And it's pretty good in season five in a way that is kind of encouraging because it feels to me like the show maybe it always should have been. And what I mean is the first season of Homeland was near perfect. I loved it. Uh, we loved it. We talked about sure. I don't think we had a podcast. No, it's like point, a but... canonical like season of television. It's great. A- and as uh, our old boss used to say, quite rightly, if the bomb had gone off at the end of the first season and that had just been a one-season show, it would be one of the greatest uh, TV series or you know one-season shows of all time. Yeah. Because, but the problem is it wasn't, wasn't, Showtime wasn't interested in making it a one season show. The ratings were too good. It won an Emmy. The president was big upping it. And it chased 
its own dragon. It chased this Brody thing and turned into this very convoluted other show. And it almost and it took this long to dig itself out of it. In fact, the first part of last season still was in this Brody hangover. That stuff is so gone now that what the show is when it comes back is a um, global espionage show that kind of like Law & Order chews up all of the headlines and then tries to, you know, dramatize them in a kind of over-the-top way. I'm fine with that show. You know, we like global espionage stuff. We like Mandy Patinkin. We like uh, Rupert Friend as as uh, Peter Quinn. Um, this season is filmed in Berlin. They added some really, really great people to the cast. They added Nina Haas, who showed up for one episode last year as Quinn's German lover. Oh, yeah. And she's back as a German uh, espionage I'm glad she stayed German. Person. I know. What if she had switched over the... Uh, uh, they added the dude from The Lives of Others, um, whose name I'm looking up because I forget it, and I don't want to accidentally name the bald guy who actually passed away. I feel like that would be inappropriate. Okay. Uh, so it's the other dude, Sebastian Koch. Uh, he was the guy, the playwright in Lives of Others, which is a great movie, and he is in this as a um, philanthropist who Carrie is now working for. It's five years later. She's out of the CIA. So wait, what year is it? It's it's just sort of unclear. It's kind of essentially now-ish, but five years within the show have passed. Five um, years? Five years, yeah. So her kid's five. Yeah, I'm sorry about the kid. The kid, we're just going to have to deal with. The kid's still there. Um, but uh, yeah, she's living in Berlin. She's out of the CIA. Other well, can, can, can we just address places. this? For, so wasn't it very, it was pre-present tense last season, wasn't it? Yeah. So, it, But it's not like 2020, though. No, not everyone is on hoverboards. Okay. No. Um, <laughs> at least not early in the season. But it's basically like the, within the first episode, you're seeing um, a, a lot of like uh, um, Snowden type stuff, WikiLeaks type stuff. And a lot of it is about Syria and the refugee situation, which makes it even more uh, timely. And the the vibe of it, though, is very much like that wonderful uh, Lakari novel and wonderful movie with Philip Seymour Hoffman. That, that is, oh, Most Wanted Man. Most Wanted Man. Yeah. That, that's kind of the vibe they're going for, and it's really, really a good vibe. So I'm trying to figure this out, and I want to hear your opinion. Like, what if this show kind of always was a BB plus? Uh, I'm sure it is. I think that the issue with it is that the very things that make it special, which are probably – a lot of what has to do with Claire Danes's performance, uh, her character kind of makes it hard for it to be a B plus. You know what I mean? It either needs to go, it, need, it needs to like strike out swinging or or hit a homer. You know what I mean? It's it's not it's it's hard. For, I I know, understand what you're saying is like, what if Homeland is just good? But unless they make some real changes, because like part of the issue of the the bad seasons and the bad times on Homeland was just like you're just sitting there watching this person. You're just being like, this person is actively bad at yeah. what they're trying to be doing. And that would be fine if everybody was like, you're actively bad. I, but instead, they're like, no, let's put her in charge of even more yes. important global I, hotspots. I, I completely agree. I wrote that many times. Like, totally right. I, I think that they've addressed that to to a small degree. I mean. So far in the episodes I've seen, and they gave us three, she's out of the CIA. She is doing things that she's nominally good at, but she is also in way over so her So what's head. she good at? <laughs> I know. I know, right? <laughs> fantasy football? She's super Tra- good at fantasy kings. football. Yeah. Did you know that Katie Asselton's role on the league was based on her? I did not. It is. It is. Um, but here's the thing. The one... Oh, my dude. We haven't talked about the league. The one, Have we ever? The one... You are you watching I mean. it again? You know what I mean. Uh, oh, we should talk about that. Uh, okay, well, let's 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 uh, tag that at the end here. 
Um, I just want to say last about Homeland. It's worth noting that we feel like some seasons were good, some seasons were bad. The ratings are terrific. They're always good. Like, and it was still nominated yeah. for Best Drama Series. So it is a small subset of the world that is infuriated by things that it does. And I'm really enjoying it. I still feel this might just be me. A little bit of frustration that it's just not a little bit better. Like The Honorable Woman, the series that we loved so much on Sundance last year, um, was just so smart about things, even when you look at it. But if The Honorable it, Woman was 40 episodes long, we'd probably be like, oh, come on. No, totally, but they did some things within its limited span. And, and Homeland is now basically turning into a show where it's like every year a new setting, a new... Yeah, know, but new I mean, like, the thing characters. that made Homeland special was the brody Carey relationship. I mean, Homeland would have always been a cool espionage story, and it would have been interesting to watch Claire right. Danes play a, a, a troubled CIA agent at the forefront of, like, the, today's headlines. Like, that all would have been interesting. But the thing that made it, prof- like, I don't know about profound, but just in- gripping was this idea that this American hero was also a possible terrorist and yeah, that, that she yeah. would fall in love with him. And it, That was the single best idea, of course. Yeah. yeah, and for a season, the love story season, it was actually like, wow, this is this is pretty this is pretty gripping. There's just some small stuff that I wish that they didn't have to do because they don't have to. They're on Showtime, you know. They're the things that people in the past have pointed to as being 24-like because there's some 24 DNA. You know, the Howard Gordon and sure. Alex Gonzalez worked on it. Like they're in Germany, and all, almost all the characters speak English all the time in German accents, like yeah. heavily accented. And that's or, or characters who when they go to the Middle East, the, the characters there speak English, and sometimes they're like, "Let's speak English." And it's like, okay, Speaking, why don't yeah. you? Right. But you don't have to. And we can deal with subtitles now, you know? On many, many shows, we've become accustomed to it. And I think it takes us, like, everything from Narcos to the Bridge, it, it takes us out of the moment. <laughs> but with Narcos... Narcos the, to the Americans. The voiceover fixes it all. <laughs> the voiceover fixes it all. Uh, Did you see uh, today... You probably didn't, but uh, today's NBA Media Day and... Um, I did see this. Kevin Durant said that he's he's learned a lot of Spanish from watching Narcos. I, am, I just hope that he listens to our podcast. <laughs> yeah, um, me too. Just the, or the fact, last thing about Homeland, that there's a, you know like a big explosion every episode to keep people sweet. Sure. You know, it's like I kind of wish it wasn't that show, but this is the show. And if you have been ever been a fan of it, I think you'll enjoy the season. Okay, and I'm going to say so. Well. Let's talk a little bit about Leftovers then. I have not yet watched it, but okay. let's talk about it for 20 minutes. No, <laughs> no, we I'm just talking about it. Like, like so. This let, is let's set the table. A for soft it is. reboot. Yes. So. There were people who loved the first season of this show. Um, Alan Sepinwall was his favorite show. He, he has, you know, I think he has terrific taste. He's very smart about TV. This was his number one show from last year. Uh, you and I did not like this show. Um, we had a lot of fun with it, though. We had fun with it. And there were things, you know, like performances, good actors. It's the kind of show that you can't quit, even if you don't like it, because you kind of want it to be better, or you want to find a way into it. And... I'm very interested and eager to watch this because it's. I thought that HBO was going to cancel it because it just didn't seem to get either the critical acclaim or the the buzz or any of the things that HBO usually likes to have in its shows. Um, they have set, basically, from what I gather, ripped up the 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 document from season one, and they've taken the main characters, Carrie Coon's character and Justin Theroux's character, um, and moved them to Texas. Just taking them out of that that uh, snowy upstate. But also, New York. like Justin Theroux's kids are coming. Andy and and, uh, and Amy Brenneman's still on it, right? I think. Or that is some, Liv Tyler I, still on it? I think some of the people are um, slightly connected to it. Maybe they'll show up again. But I do think a lot of the cast is either not no longer recurring. I don't. I don't quite know how many people are going to show up. And and maybe I don't want to. Maybe it'll be a surprise. But so far, and I'll weigh in on it next week, I guess. But 
so far a couple people who have were out on the first season like we were were back in the question is will anyone be willing to do it because it's not like it was like with walking dead a show like walking dead you can be like i'm out and then someone says it's good again you're like okay i'll just check it out because it's easy it's people killing zombies this is just deep existential grief you know right it's not something that I, I don't miss that feeling in my life, even if it's done better. So I'm curious to see if it if it grabs me. Well, it here's an interesting through line between both Homeland and Leftovers is the asking people, many of whom have, you know, a, most of us who are watching these shows have, have grown up in a time when things like the things that happen in at least Homeland have happened, right? Like there are cataclysmic events Things happen that touch our lives in the, the the in the world, and you know to see them kind of played out in these shows in, in Walking in uh, sorry in in Leftovers it's more of a like kind of spiritual or supernatural almost um, uh, occurrence. But in, you know Homeland there's like these these explosions these terrorist explosions mm-hmm. that um, that occur. And then that like those things get kind of like well that was just like a plot line and we're going to put the CIA the, the entire CIA getting destroyed aside for a second. I think that that's one of the things that stop stop me from really getting into to leftovers aside from many things was 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 that treatment of this what do they call it in the show the the disappearing or whatever what, what's the, what is it when yeah. everybody vanishes I mean it's sort of it's essentially the rapture but the rapture right. It almost seems like it's not being taken seriously enough or something. I don't know. I mean, it's it's a strange... Do you see what I'm saying about the two shows and, like, how... The, I mean, you yeah. alluded to this with The Homeland about how it needs to have a big bang every episode. And I know that television in general is going in that direction where it's like, if you had something you were saving for season two, put it in episode four. Yep. Um, I don't know. Maybe I'm just developing a little bit of scar tissue for all this stuff. No, I think that the stakes have gotten almost impossibly large. Um you know, it, I, well, I would say that's the case in movies, too, although it, the expectations are different. That, you know, like in the way we've talked about blockbuster films where New York City has to be leveled in every movie. Um, the, the scale of tragedy and suffering is so enormous than to see it reflected in such small ways. And I, I don't mean, I mean small, maybe not, small more like... Um, frankly, like not good enough. You know right. what I mean? Like right. seeing this, like seeing something... If, if that happened in the world, like that kind of rapture, that many people disappearing in this mass event, I didn't want to spend the, the fallout with Justin Thoreau and his family. Like that wouldn't be my <laughs> right. choice. Right. And you can choose who you spend it with. And obviously it was based on uh, the Tom Parada novel. And, 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 but apparently that, that novel was burned up in season one. And Parada and Damon Lindelof, who worked together on the show, have just taken it in a different direction for season Yeah, and maybe they'll like, – th- th- it's entirely possible that the second season could be really cool and like maybe sometimes – the source material can be something of an, like a anvil on a on a story, you know. Yeah, it's that's the thing, and we've talked about this before, and I think about it all the time now when I'm writing pieces. That the thing about TV is you 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 have to choose what you where you p- build your fence. You know, if you could set, you could choose a, a setting a, a, that that's rich and wonderful, but you have to put your fences down in the right place, or you're yeah. not going to get a chance to tell the right. You have to tell the best possible version of the story. Yeah, um, and I feel like that's something that needs to be drilled into to showrunners and, and people pitching much earlier because at this point they're often getting in the door with just the hook. Um, but that will be interesting to see how people react to it. And then we got Fargo season two. Now, where did we leave that with you? Where were you with season one? Very into it. It was great. I mean, it was, it was excellent. It was, it was the exact way. I mean, I think they dragged a little bit at, at, a, at certain points in the season earlier on, especially, but 
by the end of it, you're just kind of like, this was just a completely perfectly executed story. It was a success. Mm-hmm. It was just a success. I agree. Um, so I've seen one. Um, I think they sent us three or four, and I'll, I'll have to get get through those. Um, but I really liked it. And I, I, one of the things that I really liked about it, and for people who, who aren't uh, clued in on what the second season is, in the first season, do you remember the, uh, Keith Carradine's character sure. is um, uh, Molly Salverson's father was running the diner, and after he encounters Billy Bob Thornton, he says offhand, I haven't seen evil like that since Sioux Falls. Right. Um, and this is that. So Patrick Wilson plays the same character, Lou, in the late 70s and uh telling the story of what he was vaguely referring to and so it's a, it's a so great, it's an, great idea it's a great idea it connects it but not too closely it just said kind of in the same you know karmic world and the best thing about the about the first episode um by far is that it we now know what they're doing so it doesn't have the same echoes of the movie like the sure. first season did now Kieran Culkin is in it. By the way, my favorite Culkin. <laughs> he is made. He looks like Steve Buscemi in Fargo. Like he has the mustache. So there, there's still visual ticks and clues that they're playing with, and probably character types that are going to be familiar. Yeah, but it's more its own thing already, which is such a, a burden lifted. And I kind of feel like once again, Noah Noah No Socks Holly is doing donuts on Pizzolatto's lawn. <laughs> <laughs> because my man directed and wrote the first episode here and you can't and the first season was so well directed throughout and it was directed by committee it wasn't like a, uh, a fukunaga thing like yeah. it was a bunch of really talented but they TV had a directors. very they had a very like uniform visual like language for this yes for the season and uh he did this one and you know the cast is like they have ted danson ted danson's always good in everything ted danson nick offerman Plemons. jesse Plemons. By the way, Plemons put on some put on some poundage for this movie for this movie for this role, and uh, he put on some black mass. <laughs> my man, yeah, my man takes his shirt off in a way that is really exposing. You know, he really shows all of himself. Um, uh, Kirsten Dunst, uh, my man, Bokeem Woodbine, nice. Who we haven't seen in a minute. Yeah, he he has a great part. Uh, it's it's just one of those things where like it's bizarre that this would be that Fargo would be this kind of show, but when it came back and I had saw these great actors having fun in a specific aesthetic universe i was like great i'm so glad that's back which is which is as good as you can ask for in tv these days yeah it's really cool so where are you with a nick you just psyched i mean i know we're we're gonna talk Um, about it we'll get yeah let's we could save that for closer but i just that that trailer and the idea that he's in san francisco for some of it um just i'm just so excited it's it's funny, like the, the the link through a lot of what we're talking about, certainly from Sicario, and then just what we said about Fargo, and the way we're thinking about the Nick is, we are not these are not the shows or experiences where that we greeted like um, like Mad Men, where it's not like oh our friends are back and this is going to be tell this epic story. No, it's, and it's it's pretty provocative filmmaking almost. It, yeah. It's filmmaking. It's like oh I want to go back to that world. Yeah, I want to see that. I want to be in that place for a while, and and that's something that that that. And we've been. I think do. this is also an example with the Nick. One of the reasons why I'm so excited for it is that for years we've been talking about um, this – not even years, but just this last year we've been talking about this influx, this insurgency almost of you know, film directors who are going to start rushing into television because that's where they can tell the stories they want to tell. And I think Carrie Fukunaga was the example of that and then to have him sort of not do season two of True Detective, it's like, oh, well, maybe it is too hard to direct – eight hours or 10 hours of television and, and, and then turn around and start planning the next season. And I have no doubt that it is an incredibly arduous task, but clearly it's something that Soderbergh has an appetite for. And, um, 
I think that dude just loves to direct, man. And I think he's just, just really good at moving quickly. He obviously know he shoots his own stuff. I'm, he he obviously knows what he's doing, like on a set in terms of, in technical terms. Not that anybody else doesn't, but he has a special skill set to move through stuff quickly. They, well, they also do it in a way that that works for him because the one of the things that is so um, uh, slow, basically, that, that that's so demanding about television is that you're writing the episodes and then you go into production and then while you're in production, you're writing the next one. Yeah. So you don't really plan that far in advance and so you film it sequentially, more or less. The episode itself is filmed out of order, but you film the episode sequentially. What Soderbergh is doing with the Nick uh, both seasons as he's filming it like a movie so the scripts are all done in advance right and then he and his probably brilliant producers in production shoot um, everything geez. in the hospital and shoot everything yes. outside and shoot everything in the opium they den. shoot it yeah. totally out of order so if there are seven scenes in thackeray's house and in one of the scenes it's the first episode and he's like oh hello and in the seventh scene he's crawling around on his hands and knees with his hand like <laughs> i don't think he a... was ever like oh hello no but his hand is like literally in a corpse just like he's like holding a corpse like a puppet <laughs> yeah you know with like with a horse cocaine flowing through his body he has to do that the next day yeah which is you know what i or spoke to clive owen yeah he's like that's hard but then you're done with the house and then you move on and but it, it but i not many people could do that acting wise but also directing wise to keep that sense of consistency and have the whole 10 hours in your head while you're doing that it's amazing yeah well uh okay so let's let's put it okay yeah i guess let's put cap on it there right yeah i think that's fine i mean you know we, we they're always more we can always go back and talk about the league next week <laughs> we'll always have the past we'll always have the past <laughs> um all right andy i'll talk to you next week man great job Bransky. sicario thank you for listening to grantland to hear more grantland shows in your earballs subscribe to grantland sports and grantland pop culture on itunes or go to grantland.com and click on podcasts